Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vandorf, the I, and I think you're interesting. And every time I've told people I work with or just know or just like talk to and meet on the street who this week's guest is, they've gotten very excited. That probably tells you about the kinds of people that I hang out with, my rough age cohort, my rough demographic, a bunch of things. But when they find out I am talking to Bill Nye, that show that you probably remember from science class and watching it on syndicated TV reruns throughout your entire childhood. Ah, seasons. It gets cold in the winter. <sighs> Flowers bloom in the spring. We get lots of sun in the summer. Or when they learn that I'm talking to and Bill Nye of Bill Nye Saves the World, which is now in its second season on Netflix. They get really excited. People love Bill Nye. He's he's fun. He's energetic. He's geeky. He loves science. He loves having fun. He likes to make jokes. I really have enjoyed his sort of blend of science and comedy. And also I've, I've liked watching him as he sort of navigated what have turned out to be fraught political waters as he's thought about, you know, how we're we're going to tackle questions of climate change and things like that. So I had Bill in the studio this week. It was thrilling to have him there. It was a lot of fun to talk to him. I think you're really going to enjoy our discussion. We got into a lot of topics. We got into his history. We got into things that he's learned about doing a show on Netflix. And we got into topics of science and things like that. It's a really fun show. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So let's check it out. My guest today is, uh, you know him from many things, uh, Bill Nye, but his most recent is Netflix's Bill Nye Saves the World. How are you today? The Bill? entire world. Yes. <laughs> saving the entire world. How, how are you doing on that? How's uh, it well, going? Well, we're almost done. You're almost done. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, a lot of people will know you from a show you did in the 90s, Bill Nye the Science Guy. And I'm wondering, when you were starting out, like, who were the shows you were looking at? Who were your influences? Who were the people you were trying to emulate? Well, the pitch for Bill Nye the Science Guy show was Mr. Wizard meets Pee Wee's Playhouse. I remember Mr. Wizard. They had reruns of him on Nickelodeon at like 5.30 in the morning. What did you take from that show, from Mr. Wizard, and then how did you want to expand on it? Like, what did you see as the Pee Wee's Playhouse aspect of it? Oh, Mr. Wizard didn't have too much Pee Wee's Playhouse. But, no, I know. Yeah. Uh, but what it had was this clarity this guy's name is Don Herbert. I say it all the time, Don Herbert sent this country to the moon. Hmm. No, he got a generation of young scientists and engineers excited about science. He was just so clear. His demonstrations were so good. Yeah. And I use the word demonstration instead of the word experiment because we like to think we know what's going to happen when yeah. we produce it for a television show. Uh, but then Pee Wee's Playhouse is just whimsical and cool. And these characters, Cherry and the king of cartoons and everything, all this stuff jumping around. And he, uh, Paul Rubens just brought this energy to the screen that was cool. Did you always see a way to meld science and comedy? I always feel like like most of the scientists I know have very good senses of humor. Uh, I obviously have met some. Am who I the exception? Of... Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no. I've obviously have met some who are dull, but like, you know, most of the scientists I know have very good, like often very dark senses of humor. Have you have you found that to be true? Uh, I don't know about dark, but let's go cynical. Sure. Yeah, I guess that's the same. Yeah. But I'm not a big cynic guy. You got to be optimistic or you're not going to get anything done, peoples. Yeah. Many of the scientists that I cross paths with are very dry. Yeah. Uh, they let you figure out the joke. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you have a segment on Bill Nye Saves the World where you meet science Twitter. So scientists come in that you've 
met on Twitter and they, you know, kind of show you what they do. People, just anybody who hasn't been on TV before can be very stiff in front of the cameras. How do you work with them to be like, okay, here's how we're going to do it. Here's how you're going to be exciting and fun to listen to. Well, I tell everybody two things. First one is if you're not nervous, then something's wrong. Yeah. And this we say this all the time in the theater. Mm. If you stop being nervous, quit performing because the audience will see that you're not excited about it or in, into it. The other thing is I tell everybody, have fun. Mm-hmm. It's just a TV show. It's not life or death. It's a television <laughs> show. Okay. And bear, bear in mind that we went through thousands of people who responded on Twitter yeah. to get to those 12 people. So it wasn't a random selection. There were people that we thought would bring something uh, television worthy yeah. to the yeah to the show and they were great the guy from the midwest raising corn uh was studying the corn root worm right and you can be all cynical about such a thing but we all depend on agriculture and uh corn is a very important part of it not just in the u.s but worldwide the world depends still on uh, the farms of north america the breadbasket Anyway, he was studying rootworms. He goes, why don't you ever feature real scientists? You know, you're an engineer. You don't know anything about agriculture. And so we turned it into a positive. And yeah. so, <laughs> but Netflix has the uh, resources to fly a guy in from Australia, to fly a woman from Germany to talk about quantized time. Are there particles of time? Yeah. <laughs> whoa. Whoa, lady. Whoa. And so it was cool. It was a really cool thing that you're able to do when you have that kind of cash. When you meet somebody like that, somebody who is looking into time or is looking into uh, root worms, like, is that exciting for you still? To like, oh man, yeah. 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 People ask me all the time, uh, "Do you miss engineering?" I say, "Yeah, I used to work on a secret fighter plane. I I miss that uh, Mm -hmm. a little bit." Yeah, but I like being on television. I'm a performer. If you go to a stage show, I hope you're seeing people that like to be on stage. Was there a time when you realized that? you love performing like or were you just always performing like a lot of boys i went through a magic phase oh sure when out of the blue my uh, an english teacher i had who taught linguistics in high school which was an unusual course that he convinced management to uh let him teach yeah asked me to be in taming of the shrew to be tronio trusty servant well approved and all Never really thought about being on stage before, but uh, Larry Armstrong asked me to do it, and I was it was funny. I was funny. It was cool. Yeah. But uh, after that, I was intrigued by stage performing, but I still, I was working in a bike shop. I was mowing lawns. I was doing stuff like that. But I went to engineering school. I entered a dance contest. <laughs> and then uh, when I was in Seattle, working at Boeing on 747 airplanes, I was pressured. It wasn't my fault. I was pressured by a group of people to enter the Steve Martin lookalike contest. Okay. And I won. I did not advance beyond Seattle, but I won the one in Seattle. I mean, it was a Venn diagram, people. It was Bill Nye as Steve Martin, or it was everybody else at that one night, at that one venue, that one time. (laughs) Uh, But after that, you get hooked on it. I started trying to do stand-up comedy. Yeah. Do you remember some of your material from your stand-up days? Oh, no. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it was all just hilarious engineering jokes. Wow, were they funny. In in Washington State, where I was living at the time, mm-hmm. to get a motorcycle license, you, you take a test sure. on Friday mornings. It's not explained how you get your motorcycle to the test <laughs> without a license. Right. 
But my roommate went to take his test, and he was he got drunk on purpose, drunk out of his mind. I said, Steve, what are you doing? He said, well, this way, when the cop picks him up later, he'll look more like the picture on his driver's license. And that was hilarious. Wow, that was funny. <laughs> and so on. I middled, do you know what I mean, in a yeah. traditional stand-up show in a, in a town the size of Seattle. There's a headliner, and there's the MC, then there's the middle. Mm-hmm. MC, middle, headliner. I middled. Hmm. I never made it to the headline. But in those days, Harry Anderson, do you remember? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. He would come through. Jerry Seinfeld hmm. came through. They were on the circuit. And, you know, you could go on a Sunday morning as a fellow comedian. You could go have brunch with Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. He used to, maybe still does, carry a tape recorder in his the pocket of his sport coat. Anyway, the next morning, he would have a list of his jokes. Yeah. And he would listen to the tape, stop it, and write the reaction down mm. every morning, or apparently every morning. And that's how you get to his level. Yeah. It's a craft. Yeah. What was the point where you were like, okay, I have all these seemingly disparate skills. I can pull them together into one package. Well, as I say, it was a process. So mm. after I won the Steve Martin Look, trying to do stand-up comedy, there'd be open mics. Mm-hmm. And I crossed paths with a couple other guys regularly, several other guys regularly. And one of them was Ross Schaefer, mm-hmm. who went on to host the new match game. Okay. And then John Keister, who's a Seattle icon. Seattle's a big enough town to have an NBC affiliate. Right. It's a small enough town where you can sort of do whatever you want if you're the program director of the NBC affiliate. Right. So the guy, the head of programming, Chuck Jones, said, you know, I want to have a comedy show. Mm-hmm. I claim that it was Steve Martin. Steve Martin's albums yeah. were such a hit and such a new thing that every city in the U.S. and Canada had a comedy club like mm-hmm. that weekend, you know, <laughs> 1979, 1980. So Chuck Jones hired Ross Schaefer to host a show called Almost Live. Mm. And I crossed paths with these guys at open mics, and they asked me to be in a bit. And I was funny, as well as what, Todd? (laughs) Funny looking. (laughs) And so uh, I started trying to write jokes for that show. Yeah. And then I would write jokes at night and over the weekends. And eventually I quit my job, October 3rd, 1986, roughly. So these two people, Jim and Aaron, Jim McKinnon and Aaron Gottlieb, they wanted to have their own production company, and so they hired me to do a thing called Fabulous Wetlands. Okay. And it's still on the electric internet if you want to go looking for Fabulous Wetlands. A wetland is any place where the land is wet. <laughs> That's where they got the idea for the name, okay? But for a long time, people considered wetlands more like wastelands. So you see, because of this goofy idea that wetlands are sort of useless, I mean, people have tried all these nutty things. Now, now take a look. And it was really okay, Jim and Aaron's vision. I mean, with my input, as we say to do this thing for the Washington State Department of Ecology. Washington State's so hip, yeah. such a bunch of hippies, so Portlandia, it has a Department of Ecology. Yeah. <laughs> Not fish and wildlife. That's, you know, the old days. Anyway, it was funny, and it made a point. We had what people call learning objectives. These are things you can test the viewer on afterwards. Wetlands are also important as a home to thousands of species of fish and wildlife. Birds, mammals, reptiles, insects, amphibia, fish, and shellfish all need wetlands to live and grow. So what are we talking about? We're talking about... And so then they got another job about uh, boating safety, and that was good. And then they went around trying to get funding because we had the vision. I mean, you could see it. I was on Almost Live, and I did a bit 
one week when we had to fill six minutes, which is a long time. Yeah. You're listening to this podcast, people. You know how long six <laughs> minutes forever. The story varies. Was it Eddie Vedder? Was it Geraldo Rivera? Was it this other gal who had written a book about having had sex on the steps of the U.S. Capitol, Rita Jenrette? One of them didn't show up. Right. And Ross Schaefer said, Bill, you know, why don't you do that stuff you're always talking about? You could be, uh, you could be Bill Nye the science guy or yeah. something. And then he left. Yeah. <laughs> the household uses of liquid nitrogen. Yeah. It went well. So then it was just obvious. It really was that what we got to do is make a show like Mr. Wizard, like Pee Wee's Playhouse with Jim and Aaron. It just became, it was organic, I yeah. think is the word. But it took years, everybody. It takes years to win a contest, to try stand-up, to quit your job, to meet people who wanted to have their own production company, to come of age when Tipper Gore wanted to have three hours of educational television. Tipper Gore is Al Gore's wife at that Mm -hmm. time. Wanted to have three hours of educational television every week. Yeah. And television station and station groups, as they were called back then, just were like totally freaking out. Three hours of not selling toys? What are you trying to get us killed? <laughs> and so we we just were at the right place at the right time with the right product. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was in Australia for the first time in the fall. Everybody watches the show yeah. in Australia. Yeah. Wow. That was really something. What's the biggest intersection in sort of the Venn diagram of being an engineer and making a TV show? What's what's the overlap there? Oh, gosh. That's a great... You know, no one's ever asked me that, and it is a fantastic question. Thank you. And I will answer as best I can. You have to be organized. Okay. We're here in Hollywood, mm. where everybody is familiar with what we like to call the industry. <laughs> uh, and there's a call sheet. Yeah. Everybody shows up at a certain time. There's many, many jobs. Everybody has a job. Everybody's expected to do the job, and everybody wants to do the job, and for me, as an engineer, you got a plan. you got something you're going to do, and you have an objective. This is to say we, I wanted to get kids excited about science so the United States would be the world leader in uh, electric vehicles, transportation systems, stewardship of the environment. How do we accomplish that? you got to have a plan. Yeah. And then because it's a TV show, it has to be entertaining. Mm-hmm. That's different from a lot of engineering projects. However, uh, good engineering invites right use. Yeah. And so by that I mean if you get in a car, you hope that the user, the driver, can figure out what every switch does. Mm -hmm. When a pilot's sitting in the pilot seat, you hope he or she can figure out what to do based on other airplanes that he or she has flown. And in the same way – you hope that the viewer will want to keep watching, right? will want to use the product. You've brought up Steve Martin a few times. Oh, uh, man. Winning the Lookalike Contest, uh, his albums, Spawning Comedy Clubs. Have you met Steve Martin? Yeah, yeah, he got to meet me yeah. a couple of years ago. <laughs> no, it was cool. You know, he's a, he's a very private guy. Yeah. But I spent time with him. It was really gratifying. Well, I have a six-year-old nephew who is obsessed with, with science. He gets one of those mail kits and it has like little experiments in it. We love can, him. You know, do the volcanoes or whatever it is volcanoes that kids are doing. Just those. remember, <laughs> if you mix vinegar and baking soda, the gas that comes out of your chemical reaction 
is the same gas that comes out of real volcanoes. Oh. Don't forget that, people. Huh. But I think about, like, I was like that at his age. I know so many people who were like that at that age. And then, I don't know, science stops being pure or fun or something like that. I'm sorry about that, man. <laughs> when do you think that, that happens and why do you think that Well, happens? so the why is a huge question. But the when is pretty well understood. It's sometime after you're 10. Okay. We had very compelling research back in the day that 10 years old was about as old as you can be to get the so-called lifelong passion for science. Right. And if it's not 10, it's 12. It ain't 17. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not 23. Apparently, it has to do with teachers just having a zillion other things to do. Mm. And you don't want everybody to be a scientist, and you certainly do not want everybody to be an engineer. Mm-hmm. The fashion problems associated with that would be really troubling. I used to have jokes about how my pants didn't reach the floor as yeah. an engineer. <laughs> now it's a fashion yeah. to not wear socks and have short pants. Just these kids today. You were setting a trend. You didn't even know. It was all me. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, what we want to do is not have everybody be an engineer or scientist, but have everybody appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Appreciate the great value of science. And this is why right now... It's really so troubling and why we are doing the Bill Nye Saves the World show. This anti-science movement is so strong. Yeah. There are really people on the electric internet running around apparently for real, seriously, questioning whether or not the earth is a ball. Yeah. You're freaking kidding me. What about the clothes you're wearing, man? Everything you have on was made in another country with yeah. very few exceptions. Because people were able to navigate the world's oceans because they figured out the Earth is a ball. And all the satellites and cell phones we have now are derived entirely from people plying the trackless ocean with sextants and uh, confidence in their ability to sail. So this idea that the Earth could be flat is so weird. Yeah. That The idea that this 300-year-old technology of vaccinations is not real— what are you crazy? Like, what's happened to us? The other day, it was pointed out to me that the largest radio telescope mm-hmm. is being built in China. The U.S. that I grew up in, the largest radio telescope was going to be U.S. controlled. It's built in Puerto Rico. Uh, it's still there, Arecibo. So this idea that you can not embrace science and remain economically competitive, I think, will catch up with us very quickly. Yeah, I guess when I was a kid, for me, science was political because I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian household. So wow. We were very upset about like that we couldn't teach creationism or whatever. Where did you grow up on? Uh, South Dakota. Oh, so, wow. But uh, I guess sort of my larger point is science for a long time was not considered political in the sense that like ah, Republicans yes. and Democrats sort of agreed on like the basic facts of science. The value. Yeah. Uh, the basic facts, the basic value of science, you know, even if they were making a, you know, sort of making a sop to uh, religious right followers like, oh, maybe we should think about creationism more or something like that. There was sort of this agreement that science was real and a thing that people should care about. That increasingly is um, uh, in debate, I'd say. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and you have become sort of accidentally a political figure. In that That's way. right. That was not my. Pl- hey, everybody. <laughs> I'll stop talking about climate change as soon as we do something about it. What has that journey been like for you both as somebody within it, but then also as an observer of this country and sort of the discussions we have about things like climate science? Well, it's heartbreaking in a way, Mm -hmm. but it also fills me with passion. I I talk about this all the time. 
My parents were both veterans of World War II. Mm. The U.S. Navy hired many, many very large construction companies. And uh, my dad went to work for one of them to build up the nest egg so he could marry the woman who became my mom. And he took a job on Wake Island. You may not have ever heard of it. It's in the middle of Pacific Ocean, nowhere. And uh, they were bombed on December 8th. They fought back for a couple weeks, and they were eventually captured. He spent almost four years as a prisoner of war. My mother was recruited to work on code breaking Mm. for the U.S. She was a Navy lieutenant when she got all done with it. And so they're both veterans, and they're both very progressive in their political views. But they were patriots, I think because of this experience that everyone at that time shared. Everybody during World War II was doing something about World War II. I grew up with this patriotism. And when I see people denying science for what seemed to be economic reasons, this is to say, uh, I'm in the oil business, I don't want to stop selling oil, so I'm going to pretend that climate change isn't happening. It's just heartbreaking. It really is for me, bust my chops, it really is for me unpatriotic to deny science. I mean, what made the United States the world leader that it has been my whole life is our technology. So I was brought up with this patriotism that is based on science, based on the process that enables us to innovate. Right. So it just breaks my heart when these people want to deny climate change. They want to say the earth is flat. They want to um, not eat genetically modified food because of some myth that it carries toxins or something. It's just, I've eaten a lot of genetically modified corn. Look at me, I'm fine. <laughs> so this denial of science is heartbreaking. I guess I said that 16 times, and I should say it 17. <laughs> One of the things that is a hallmark of science is you take in more evidence and it shifts your view. Of yeah, what you science think is always changing. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, obvi- the obvious example is everybody realizing the Earth was not the center of the universe, you know, and having to rethink their conception of everything from that. But one of the things that science has taught us is that when you have a deeply held belief, hearing it's not true can make you believe it more. Uh, the backfire effect. Yeah. yeah. As you think about that question, as you make your TV shows, as you go speak to people, how do you approach that problem. I remind everybody it's a process. And the classic example, you know, I'm a big skeptic. I belong to both big time skeptic organizations here in the U.S. And uh, if you have somebody who says, I have a ghost in my house. I met somebody the other day at NASA who believes she has a ghost in her house. I don't think she has a ghost in her house. (laughs) And I think if I went there, I would find no evidence of ghosts. And it's her projecting uh, myths that have been passed down for millennia about the afterlife and so on. But it takes somebody about two years to change her or his mind. If you meet somebody who believes in astrology strongly, Mm -hmm. it takes a couple years to get that person to change her or his mind. Uh, You present the evidence, the backfire effect that you meant, no, no, I believe it even more. But then... After a while, he or she will come around and just got to accept as an educator or um, as an arguer for the scientifically apparent truth that it takes a long time for somebody to overcome what psychologists call the backfire effect, where you 
you double down on your denial. I will say when I in my old apartment, we had one of those wireless doorbells. And it would go Ooh. off like every night at like 3 a.m. Yeah. And like, of course, you know, we would jokingly say it was a ghost. But yeah. then we found out it was somebody coming home from work that had their garage door garage open door on the same frequency. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of enough. disappointing, yeah, honestly. Bit, I wanted yeah, it to sorry. be a ghost. But, <laughs> but isn't it empowering yeah, to yeah. find out? It was fun to figure that out. So listen, maybe you're looking for your own science guy. Maybe you're looking for your own lab assistant. Maybe you're looking for somebody to help you in your dastardly experiments if you're some sort of mad scientist. Well, guess what? I've got the site for you. It's ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. That's you, mad scientist. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for. It identifies people with the right experience, and it invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there, and ZipRecruiter is how you find them. So listen, right now my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Mad scientists, listen now. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash think. ZipRecruiter.com slash think. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. You listen to the show. You know that. Human sexuality is on a spectrum. And if you're like me, and I know I am, <laughs> you're still learning about this field of science. I used to think there were just two settings, male and female. But it's actually a lot sexier than that. Check out this smoking hot abacus of sex. Bill Nye Saves the World is ostensibly aimed at adults. Obviously, kids yeah. can watch it, but it's yeah. not a kid-centric program in the way it Science Guy was. Have you shifted your approach at all to kind of this, the fact that there is an anti-science environment now? Well, yes and yes. So the big difference, everybody, is so-called discipline in vocabulary, what I call DIV, discipline in your vocabulary. In a kid's show, you can't use too many multisyllabic words or you're going to lose the audience. And the other big thing on both shows is you want to show, then tell. But the other thing, on the Saves the World show, the topics are a little more complicated. We're talking right. about human population burgeoning. We talk about climate change, water shortages. You know, in Cape Town, which is a huge city, I've been there a couple times, they're not going to have water. Yeah. Okay. That's really bad. A huge population, industrial, uh, capable town cannot get water. Where are those people going to go? And if there's a little bit water, a little bit of water, where we've had these enormous, relentless racial conflicts for centuries, there's going to be more conflict. And what if that's just the start of things? So on the Saves the World show, we address more complex topics. The one that drove everybody nuts was the sexuality show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which to me, I got to say, is just sort of more interesting than controversial. I don't want to shock your listeners, but there are a great many people on the so-called sexual spectrum out there that you do business with. You just haven't been paying attention. Yeah. Which illustrates really 
how kind of irrelevant it is in day-to-day business, but how important it is to a person who is somewhere not in the mainstream, not in the majority mm-hmm. on the sexual spectrum. And uh, you just want to respect those people the way you respect everybody. Uh, so I, as I say, that, that, that brought on so much controversy was interesting to me. So in the second season, the first of the new shows is about marijuana. Yeah. And uh, that's going to be the one I think is going to bring a lot of controversy. And my argument or the argument of the show is we know what tetrahydrocannabinol is, THC, and cannabidiol, the CBD. But we don't know exactly what it does, where it works. And it's somehow related to other drugs, which are somehow related to addiction. Right. And I am fascinated by the idea that people who are addicted to gambling have the same part of their brains lit up under MRIs as people who are drunk or using methamphetamines or marijuana. There's no chemical involved in gambling, yet people's brains respond the same way. There's something really, really subtle going on there that's worth understanding. And in the case of alcohol... You know, pilots are allowed to fly eight hours after they have their last glass of wine at the, uh, if you're a pilot, where do you go? Um, TGI Fridays, <laughs> something like that. And, and so there's no trace of alcohol the next day. Mm-hmm. It's so um, readily metabolized, it, it goes away. Your liver cooks it and it's burned as calories. But marijuana, the, the THC, the CBD, they stick around with you for two weeks. Is that good or bad? Is that a thing? Do we need to worry about that? That's an interesting question. So we had the guy on the show from Washington State who uh, said we legalized marijuana in Washington State five years ago, and the sky did not fall. That's Mm -hmm. his argument. The other interesting thing was use among young people has not increased Hmm. even after it was legalized in Washington State. To me, that's interesting. So anyway, the argument of the marijuana show is we need to study it. It's not understood. What are some other, like, really basic topics you're surprised we don't understand as well as we do? Well, just that there are people running around don't want to get vaccinated. I mean, that's really just weird to me. And the other thing that I really wanted to point out is the importance of what everybody nowadays calls cybersecurity. We depend on the Internet for everything, and we've got to protect it. And so most of the... Security breaches are induced by people just being fooled, right? not by extraordinary hackers or code breakers. Most of the problems in cybersecurity are people just not being attentive, not yeah. being disciplined with their uh, internet interactions. And so that was something really important to me. I wanted to show the show the world. How tightly scripted is Saves the World? You have a lot of like uh, famous people on. and Well, know. my opening monologue is scripted. The mm-hmm. same way the monologue on The Tonight Show or The Late Show is scripted. Sure. But then the, the panels, you're never supposed to say your favorite. But I do like the panels where it's not scripted. I mean, we have a set of questions just as you do over there, the interviewer. But we want to see what people have to say. Wait, mm-hmm. hear what people have to say. Ha, ha. And so that's a really important aspect of it. So we try to get experts. And by long tradition, we'll have three experts right. who present different views on the topic. Mm-hmm. Some people think that the technology we all use all the time, mobile phones, is ruining our society. And these kids today will never be the same back when I was young and so on. And other people go, well, that's just how people communicate these days. Yeah. What have you learned about 
interviewing people or guiding a panel discussion. I don't listen to a word they say. <laughs> no, I I try to listen, man. I know yeah. you're in the business, but you got something you want to get them to say. Yeah. But a lot of times you just got to let go of that and let them you just got to listen. You yeah. Know, we all want I mean, I talk for a living. <laughs> and I got to shut up and listen. One of the things I wonder about, because you're on Netflix, which has an algorithm, which sort of tells you—that's the secret word—that yeah, sort of tells you, you know, what you might want to watch next. Obviously, you can go search it out yourself if you hear Bill Nye saves the world on this podcast. But one of the things I think about is like we are very worried about polarization, about being sort of stuck. oh, you always say that <laughs> about sort of being stuck in. Um, a silo where you only get information. You from either watch certain. Fox or MSNBC. Yeah, you don't, like, exactly. There's no crossover. Do you wonder at all about like how you can reach out to people who maybe you need to spend those years getting them to change their mind in a world where it's so easy to just be like, well, my algorithm told me to watch something else. So two things. The first one is, you know, I worked at a regular TV station. Everybody was obsessed with the ratings. That's all you talked about is on every bulletin board. Is yeah. it up or down? Too long, too short, to, 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 appealing to males 18 to 25 or not. But at Netflix, it's all subsumed <laughs> secretly in the algorithm. <laughs> uh, but that is a problem uh, that we do get s- silent. But what I'll say is you got to reach out to the other side and just talking some more about me. <laughs> I was invited to go to the State of the Union address. Right. By Jim Bridenstein, who's a congressman from Oklahoma, on the public record, very conservative guy, Navy pilot, landed on aircraft carriers for years, still in the Navy Reserve, but has sponsored a bill to study tornadoes in his native Oklahoma. Right. I was criticized on the electric internet. How can you go to that thing, go to that State of the Union bill? How can you sit there with these people who deny climate change or seem to? What sort of message are you sending? The message I'm sending, everybody, is you have to reach out. You have to listen to what the other side has to say. This guy, for better or for worse, may very well become the next administrator of NASA. Right. I am the CEO of the Planetary Society, the world's largest non-governmental space interest organization, and I'm going to work with the next administrator of NASA. So this knee-jerk, the other side sucks reaction, I understand completely, and I feel more than a little bit of it myself. But we have to reach across. You just have to. When you talk to people who are perhaps a little more conservative, perhaps are climate deniers, something like that, like what is a kind of what is a common fear you hear, and how do you either speak to that or or kind of uh, correct it? Well, my big thing is what makes you think that climate's not changing. Sure. What what is it that makes you think that? And it often devolves into ad hominem or personal attacks about the authorities. <laughs> the big problem that we have, and by we I mean everybody on earth, is the United States is not leading the world in addressing climate change because apparently fossil fuel interests have been very successful in hiring very good communications organizations and individuals who have introduced the idea that scientific uncertainty, plus or minus is a couple percent, Mm -hmm. is the same as plus or minus 100 percent, as doubting the whole thing. 
And this has devolved into this conspiracy theory that people become climate scientists to make money. When I was growing up, the problem was finding good information. You'd have to go to the library and look things up in books, multiple sources. If you could find, as a kid, if you could find four or five sources, you were kicking empanage, kicking yeah. butt. But now you get 5,000 sources in an electronic instant. Mm-hmm. We need to get people to be able to sort the information. What we call critical thinking skills is uh, what we need for people. And so I asked climate change deniers, what makes you think the climate's not changing? Mm-hmm. And for me, the answer is climate scientists are lying to me. It's just not satisfactory. Right. Why would a guy publish a paper about the hockey stick graph if he hadn't discovered it? What, what's in it for him? Getting a grant from graph paper companies? Like, mm-hmm. no, it's just it's just not how it works. Uh, you know, I say all the time. All the time, I've seen some of these professors drive Honda Accords. That's yeah. the kind of money they're making. You know, the premise is just silly. And the other thing that's really troubling right now is this conspiracy theory being promoted on cable news networks. It's really troubling. If only there were 60 people on Earth and we could round up those 60 people and tell them, just cut it out. (laughs) Cut out your climate change stuff and cut out your uh, doing business by selling apartments to Russian entrepreneurs for way more than they're worth and keeping the money because no one else will give you a loan. Cut that out. <laughs> but it's not how it is, everybody. It's There isn't a conspiracy. Sorry. But there certainly are like-minded people working together to promote ideas. And I guess I'm among them. But what we want to say is you, you try. You look at the evidence for climate change. You look at the evidence for the effectiveness of vaccinations. As we kind of head into the end of the show, uh, I have to ask, do you remember from either show, like what's a demonstration – that took the most takes to get right? On Saves the World, I'm embarrassed, everybody. <laughs> like so many people, I've crushed oil drums. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, no, so there's a classic demonstration where you boil water mm-hmm. in a can. And I'm talking about when I was in seventh grade, a paint thinner can, mm-hmm. just a spectacular can in that it was a familiar object to people of my age. And it's big. Mr. Flowers, my seventh grade teacher, boiled a little bit of water in it, put the cap on, let it sit there, and it was crushed by atmospheric pressure because when you boil water, you drive out all the air. And many of us forget that water vapor Mm -hmm. is itself a gas, an invisible gas. Don't kid yourself. And uh, when it cools, it turns back into a liquid. It takes up about a 25th as much volume. And atmospheric pressure crushes it as though by a giant's fist. Hmm. So I had a great deal of trouble with this, trying to crush an oil drum on the comedy show. But after a while, I got good at it. I've crushed oil drums in many cities around the world (laughs) by boiling water in an oil drum, everybody. Then you put the bung in the bung hole, put it in a kiddie pool full of ice water, and it crushes. It's spectacular. Mm -hmm. Well, on the Saves the World show, I was doing this with a regular soda can. 350 milliliter, 12 ounce soda can. And it wouldn't crush over and over <laughs> because I was in a hurry. I just wouldn't let the water boil. Yeah. And so it took seven, six or seven takes. 
I'm embarrassed, everybody, but we got it eventually. <laughs> well, we end every show by asking our guests some of the same questions, so I'm going to ask you those questions. Uh, and we're going to start with, what's the last like movie you saw, TV show you watched, book you read, just something pop culture you did, and what did you think of it? Uh, three Billboards, I thought, was just brilliantly written. Yeah. Wow. Mm. It was really cool. Yeah. Uh, then... I just did a Nike commercial. It's total pop culture, screamingly hilarious. Try it out. And uh, I saw um, Shape of Water. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. You didn't buy The Fishman in Love? I love Fishman in Love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoyed uh, Hidden Figures. Yeah. Very much. And I really um, uh, associated that with my mom, who was mm. a woman who was good at math and science and had to fight pretty hard to uh, get recognized. I remember when my mother couldn't get an American Express card. Mm. Now, some disclosure, my mother was not African-American, which I'm sure is obviously a far more difficult thing than a guy like me can really even imagine. I try as we may. But uh, I, uh, I thought that was a cool movie, and it was about people who were just objectively better at doing math than other people, although you in this case, these women had to work very hard. Who's the person you've learned the most from that you've never met? They can be alive or dead, so it could be like Isaac Newton or someone. Well, it's probably Isaac Newton. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, the guys who invented calculus, it's mm-hmm. a hell of a thing. Yeah. So consider the following. Mm-hmm. I just was in Cape, I really was, at Cape Canaveral for the launch of the Falcon Heavy. Mm-hmm. This extraordinary rocket. We're going to reuse rockets to lower the cost. That's the premise. Mm-hmm. Spent about a billion to get the cost down to ninety million. They got to do a lot of launches to recover that, but we'll see. But anyways, it was spectacular. Yeah. Just think about this, you all. You know how much, in this case, the Tesla Roadster car weighs. Yeah. And uh, you know how far you want to throw it into orbit, and so you're going to put rocket fuel in the rocket under the car. Yeah. After you light the engine or the twenty-seven first stage engines. Every instant of time that goes by, the rocket weighs less. Hmm. Yeah. Every instant of time. So how much fuel do you start with? Yeah. That's rocket science. (laughs) And that problem was solved by Newton and Leibniz. But just thinking about your question, Mr. Flowers, my seventh grade teacher, really was the first time I was introduced to the idea that science is a process and a discipline. Yeah. You know, science is, for me, two things. It's a body of knowledge, but it's really the process. What's a proton? Why do you think of an atom as having protons? Why is that model so successful? It's really amazing to me. And I think it was when I was 12 going on 13 where I really was exposed to this idea. And I think about William of Ockham and Occam's razor. Do you know Occam's razor? Yes, yes. The simplest explanation is probably the best explanation. Don't make me pick. And my hero in history, Michael Faraday. Okay. He does the thing with the magnets and the compass, and the compass needle moves, and the woman comes up to him after the lecture and says, of what use is it? Mr. Faraday, with a British accent, I presume. (laughs) Mr. Faraday, of what use is it? And he says, madam, of what use is a newborn babe? (laughs) We're on the electric computer machine. None of that would be possible without Faraday's discovery or demonstration. And so Faraday's law is credited to Michael Faraday. You can get in a fist fight in the electromagnetism bar about Orsted, but okay. He was the old guy. guy. <laughs> uh, but Faraday coined the noun electromagnetism. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And uh, Faraday's law. We stand on the shoulders of giants. And the final question, 
is a completely different thing. What's your favorite meal you've ever eaten, whether the taste of the food or the quality of the company and, uh, and, and, and why? I've had a lot of fantastic meals with a lot of great people. Uh, I lived in the Northwest for a long time. And as a young man, it just got a fascination with climbing mountains. This was a thing to do. And these are, it's not Switzerland, but kind of is. There's glaciers and very steep rocks. And REI was invented, Recreational Equipment Incorporated. You may have heard of Early Winners or Eddie Bauer. All these outdoor equipment companies are from that area. And uh, I used to make a sandwich featuring fresh bread from a Seattle bakery this French roll-style bread, cream cheese, scallions or green onions, sure. and smoked salmon. Sounds great. Okay, and this sandwich is mechanically durable. Yeah. You can carry it up the mountain, carry it hiking, bounce around, cross-country skiing, and uh, it's durable. Yeah. It, it, when you bite into it, it's still intact. And I have had dozens of those that have filled me with great joy. You know this, you know, when you're camping, everything tastes good. Well, there's a lot to that. Yeah. So I'm not saying that's the best meal I've ever had. There's a professor at Cornell, Michelle Luge. Michelle's a man. His wife, Nadine, they're French, as you may infer. They have made me some fantastic meals. Mm. And no joke, everybody, a close friend of mine is Neil deGrasse Tyson, and the guy is quite the enologist. He is quite the wine connoisseur. Hmm. And the wines that he'll just pull out to have at the dinner with the board members of the Planetary Society are just amazing. Yeah. And they make the meal amazing. Yeah, yeah. But, man, don't make me pick, Tom. There's too much out there. <laughs> well, thank you very much. As as our guests know when they tuned in for a Bill Nye podcast, they, were, they knew they were going to get a great sandwich recipe. So thank you very much for joining us, Bill. Thank you. And the show is Bill Nye Saves the World. It's on Netflix. I Think You're Interesting is an irresponsible experiment launched by people who have no idea what they're doing, but we're slowly closing in on the solution. We're slowly closing in on the grand unified theory of making this podcast. We hope you're enjoying the ride. The show is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and our studio are thanks to P3 Post in beautiful Hollywood, California. Our producer is Bridget Armstrong. And our recording engineer, as always, is Che Brooks. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you happen to find it. We really appreciate it. It helps us get the word out about the show. And you can also email me if you have something you want to say that you don't want to leave in a review. I'm Todd at Vox.com. You can email the whole crew that works on the show at ityi.podcast at Vox.com. That's itye.podcast at Vox.com. You can also tweet at me at TVOTI to Vody. You're going to find all of my writing at Vox.com in the culture section. We're going to be back next week with another guest from the world of arts and entertainment and media and culture, somebody who I think is interesting. Actually, I'll tell you, it's going to be David Litt. He's one of the head joke writers for President Obama. I thought it was a lot of fun to talk to him about how to write comedy for the commander in chief. So come back for that. And until then, test all your hypotheses. Maybe one of them will be right.